You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Richard Serino, distinguished visiting fellow at Harvard's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, former Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator, and former chief of Boston EMS. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, April 20th. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, I just wanted to open up with a, just a couple of quick comments and then questions, as Nicole mentioned. Remember last week and for a little bit, Dr. Fauci has been saying that the virus sets the timeline. And that's true, but I think one thing that's important is that the leaders are going to dictate the response and how they do or don't do that will actually dictate the number of lives saves and how and when we open safely. One of the things that we see in most crises is how do we plan for recovery? A lot of times we plan for response. And this disaster pandemic is no different. And how do we plan for recovery? And recovery for this is going to be different than almost any other kind of disaster. But a couple of things that you have to remember in any disaster is that, you know, crisis is never just one thing. We are in the middle of a pandemic and there are obviously many, many ripple effects. The first and foremost is the health and well-being of the citizenry of the world this time. But also, how do we keep the healthcare workers, the EMTs, the paramedics safe? How do we continue to do that as we start to see the opening that's going to happen gradually across the country? And how do we do that safely? And I think one of the most, two of the most important things is trust and empathy. To understand that we have to have trust in the leaders who are telling us what to do and how to do it. But the leaders also have to show empathy for those that we've lost, those that are suffering, and those that are working each and every day to get us through this. So I think as we start to look at this and how we're able to do this, and you know, there's lots of different um, ideas of how we're going to open. And I think it's, they all have very good points in how we're able to do that. But one of the things is how we're going to do that is over, as we call at the Harvard MPLI, is the arc of time. And how that arc of time, specifically in this case, uh, how we're going to be able to do that. And the speed of the arc, um, which is different than the curve and flattening the curve, but how we're going to be able to do that and how we're going to be able to do that safely. And there's a number of acts over different phases, whether it's the three phases the federal government put out, or six phases that other people have put out, but how we're gonna do that and how we're gonna do that safely. Um, and I think as we start to look at how we're gonna do that and understanding you know, that we're gonna look at this in, from a government point of view, from a health point of view, from an economic point of view, business point of view, but also as individuals and how we're gonna be able to do that as individuals. Um, a lot of us have been sheltering place at home for, for a bit now, but how do we transition to the next, next part of where we're going to the next phase? And what do we have to, how do we review whatever mitigation practices, how we're able to support healthcare, how we're able to support the responders. And once we're sure of that and the testing, the never ending testing, how we're able to do that. Um, but I also have to look at how we're gonna transform, how we're gonna transform how we live and how we're gonna be able to do that. You know, people who are going to work every day, the, and, I, and I'm gonna say this over and over again, the healthcare workers, the paramedics, the EMTs, that, that group literally putting their lives at stake. 
is we, and I think we have to recognize, and we've done a good job of that, and I think we have to continue to do that as well as all the service employees, the people that are getting us food. But how do we now in other businesses, whether it's people talked about sports and just looking at, you know, televised game, but how do we transform? And how are we going to transform of what we do and as being transformational leaders? And there's a number of points with that. I think the first one is we have to make look at safety and ensure that your employees are safe. And it goes back to as leaders in a crisis, people have to trust you and you have to show concern for what they're doing in businesses. And you have to listen to what they want, what they, what they want and what you're able to do. And, you know, writing a letter is usually not the best. Uh, now, being in person is difficult, but, you know, there's still the phone, there's Zoom calls, there's Zoom videos, um, and acknowledging what they're able to do. Um, and now's the time for innovation. You know, who thought that um, we'd be able to do everything that we're doing now on Zoom and not being able to, you know, go into the supermarkets and adventure? So I think there's an opportunity here for innovation in transformation. And then we have to look at how we're able to do that, how we're able to encourage the ideas and you know, collaboration. And when things fail, we have to celebrate the failure in how we reopen. I'm not talking failure, obviously, in medicine, but I'm talking how we can find the opportunity in a crisis to do things better. Um, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I mean that in a way that we can we can challenge ourselves to be better in how we're able to move forward. I'll, I'll just pause now and then probably take some questions might be the best way to go. Thank you, Rich. Okay, it looks like first question. Hi, yes, I was wondering if you could address the idea of immunity passports or certificates and um, what are, I guess, some of the uh, scientific as well as ethical considerations and, um, you know, is, is this something that the U.S. is considering seriously right now, um, how would these work? Sure, I, I can speak on, um, you, I, I can't, cannot speak on what, whether they're seriously considering or not because I'm not in government anymore. However, um, I think that there's some efficacy in it, but I think in this country we, we've, that you see the challenges here that you haven't seen in other places is gonna be a lot of the privacy concerns that go along with that. If we can overcome the privacy concerns, then I think they, they could, there is some uh, good possibilities that you could see it. But right now, until the privacy concerns are addressed, um, both for the individuals to have that faith and trust in it, uh, as well as for um, the medical community to have faith and trust in it. I think once you have those two, then you then continue, then I'll have to move forward. But without those, uh, I don't, I'm going to see a very difficult time in this country for people to, to agree to sharing a lot of that information. If they, if they can overcome those concerns, um, I think it will be. And I know a lot of um, people are working on it, but I think in other countries where they didn't have as many of those concerns, it will be a big, I think a bigger issue here. Okay, thank you. Um, any other questions? Um, uh, thanks for having a call as usual. You know, we're, we're starting to kind of talk about preparing for a potential second wave and this uh, strategy that's out there of test, trace, and isolate. Um, you know, we have a lot of questions for Florida's DOH right now about how they're going to get to that point in testing. Um, right now, we're doing a lot of our contact tracing with students 
um, through the universities. Uh, so that's, you know, I think a work in progress. And then isolation, I don't think we really have a good idea of how we're going to um, do that, whether we're going to continue to have home isolation or, or potentially some alternate treatment sites. Uh, with all that said, I was just curious if you had any thoughts about that general framework uh, uh, as, a, as far as a strategy and whether all three of those are needed or if you just need testing, as some people are saying, and kind of how to balance that and maybe what to emphasize over other things. Well, I, I think you're going to need, it's, it's not going to be one thing that's going to uh, get us through this pandemic and this crisis. I think trace, test, isolate is going to be needed going forward. And I think that's just one part of it. But until we have all the testing, uh, we're not going to be able to get there. And that's going to help us as much as, you know, the self-stay-at-home, self-isolation has been working to really flatten the curve. And we've seen it working. I'm here in Boston and we've, you know, we're seeing the peak of it. But if we didn't have this isolation, the peak would be much higher. And if people continue, we'll see another peak uh, going up if we, if we don't continue the self-isolation for a while. But I think it is once you have the testing uh, at a significant number and you're able to trace and isolate people, that's going to help so we don't have another peak. Um, but we also have to be able to be able to pivot quickly. And I think in most crises, pivoting is always key, is understanding to see Let's not wait until we have huge numbers to pivot. I think so if we can isolate individuals and slow the spread during the second wave. And there's obviously a lot of talk of how we did in 1918 in the spring, there wasn't a huge surge, uh, but then the fall we saw the even deadlier surge. There are a few, many things different than 1918. Um, first off is the fact that we're able to communicate like we are now via Zoom video, but it's not just us communicating, it's scientists all over the world and spreading the word. Um, and the media in 1918 also didn't um, downplay it initially, and obviously that's not happening now. So I think that in, we also are able to communicate with each other, citizens, government officials, uh, much quicker than we were in 1918. Um, science is decidedly different since, in, since 1918. The virus is still strong, obviously, but there's many things uh, that are different. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic that, yes, we can uh, look at going forward, but we have to look at it in uh, multimodal facets. And I think it's the test, trace, isolate. I think it's communications. I think science. Vaccine is still going to take, you know, 18 months or so. To, to have a vaccine, but there may be treatments that are available. We're able to isolate quicker. We can keep track of uh, numbers much better across the country, across the world. So I think that it's, it's in a different place and hopefully that's gonna help us, but that's gonna take the whole community effort. It's gonna take the citizens first. It's gonna take the faith-based community. It's gonna take nonprofit agencies. It's gonna take the federal, state, local, tribal, territorial governments to all come together. Um, this is going to be truly a whole of community effort as we move forward to, to stop this. It's, and it's also going to take the business community. It's going to play a huge role in how people are able to come back to work and how people are able to come back to work in stages. And as I mentioned earlier, it's also an opportunity to do new things differently. Um, and we have to look at this as an opportunity um, in the midst of a, a horrendous crisis as well. 
on each one of these points, and thank you for your response, what does sufficient testing capacity look like? Um, and then kind of in addition to that, separately, when we're talking about the isolation component, um, you know, here in Miami, as I think a lot of metro areas in, in the country, we have pretty stark disparities in, in terms of access to healthcare. And we saw a story in the New York Times over the weekend about someone who was turned down for treatment uh, multiple times and ended up dying. How do we kind of solve that issue? And is, is the fever clinic model um, a plausible way to, to set up uh, places where if someone's sick, but maybe not necessarily sick enough to be hospitalized, that they have a place to go so we can ensure that they're not um, spreading the, the virus and also that they're not going to crash without anyone there to kind of intervene. Um, so those are my two follow-up questions. Sure. Um, I think on the health disparities, unfortunately, that's not new to the coronavirus. It's, I think, highlighting um, to a lot of people that maybe didn't notice it before, but it's something that I know here in Boston and New York and other cities have been dealing with for a long time and making some progress. For example, in Boston, at Boston Hope, which is their um, treatment center, the convention center, uh, half of the beds, 500 of the beds there are specifically for um, homeless populations uh, and people who don't have access to healthcare. So um, I think it, it, that's a start. But the disparities uh, in healthcare is this is shining a light on what unfortunately happens each and every day, and looking at uh, opportunities and how to house people who, who don't have housing and people who do have housing. I think the isolation. At the, if you remember towards the beginning of this, there was a lot of isolation before everybody was uh, asked to stay at home. There was a lot of isolation, and vast majority of people. Uh, did stay home and um, before the stay at home order when they were ordered to. Um, and if necessary, um, very, very few, a handful of cases that I remember hearing about that people didn't follow those orders. Uh, so I, I think the vast majority of people will follow the orders to isolate at home. The key is providing them with the wraparound services that they need to stay at home. Um, and that's better than going to a congregate shelter. Uh, they have no home, obviously, that's the place, a congregate shelter specifically for COVID-19 patients. But providing the wraparound services uh, in order to make to encourage that they can stay home, whether it's uh, at home nursing care, making sure they have food. And I know New York City has done a, a, a good job at looking at how to do that um, to provide those wraparound services as well. So I think that, you know, it, it's, highlighting what this country has seen for a while in health disparities. Do you have any other questions or are you all set? Yeah, just the first part of that, what, what does sufficient test capacity look like um, as far as, you know, how do we know when we're there? Uh, I know the New York Times had a story recently where they basically said you need to triple the current capacity uh, to be able to run all these tests and, um, you know, given the uncertainties about the accuracy, the serological antibody tests, do you see this, uh, you know, how do you see the, this testing capacity being, uh, you know, deemed appropriate to reopen? Um, first off, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I don't make that clear. Um, but I think that there's also um, the testing, I don't can't give you exact number now, but obviously it has to be increased in the, the amount that we can increase so that we have good data to show uh, where we are, we're nowhere near that data now. We're still having people having difficulty just getting tested in, in, ish, in, um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Also, I think that the, the other test that we need to do is the vast amount of people that are unfortunately uh, dying at home. 
in some cities we're seeing, you know, 10 times the, the normal deaths at home than we see in a um, normal time. And those, some of those have not been counted as COVID-19 deaths. So I think we're also seeing the secondary part of people who have COVID-19 dying at home and also people who are dying at home because they are not going to the hospital uh, for what, uh, other ailments. So I think we have to do a, a lot of uh, how we have to look at that even in more detail of the number of people that are dying at home, uh, both for testing purposes, but also to get a true number of the people that are dying and the ones that are related, not specifically to COVID-19, but because of COVID-19 are dying at home as well. Okay, thank you. Um, next question. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my question. Um, there's a story in the Times, New York Times today about antibody testing being used inappropriately by some clinicians. And you alluded to this issue a little bit in your previous answer here, but I'm wondering how much of an issue even if we get adequate supplies and capacity for antibody testing and testing for COVID-19 in general, um, how much of an issue is that communication and education of providers and also cost uh, associated with uh, getting these tests out and, and uh, healthcare systems being able to afford to acquire them? I, I think a couple of points. I think first on the, um, the test, the training for people how to use them in how to interpret the results is going to be key. I mean, we, we saw that initially with even some ventilators and the different types of ventilators and getting people trained. So I think education and training is going to be key. A number of private laboratories, uh, hospitals are putting a lot of time and effort into training and getting the right amount of people uh, on board in order to do that. The cost uh, is also an issue that hospitals are dealing with, uh, private labs are dealing with across the country. Um, and I haven't seen the latest version of the uh, latest stimulus bill, but uh, I understand there's some uh, monies in there specifically for hospitals uh, in this, and that's gonna be key in order to continue the testing going forward as well. Thank you. Next question. Great. Thanks so much for taking my question. I'm, I'm talking with us today. I'm curious uh, if you feel like state and local leaders might be missing the mark, possibly in talking about, you know, a quote unquote, reopening the economy as, as, as if it's sort of that simple as if going from close to open. It, should they be talking about it differently? Uh, and are there uh, nuances and in, in what they can do that are, are being missed when we talk about it like that? Well, I, I think state and local leaders, especially those who are dealing with the surge right now, their effort uh, initially uh, in, in here in, in the Boston, Massachusetts area specifically now is seeing the surge is on saving lives and making sure people are healthy. So I think that that's appropriate. At the same time, uh, cities that are in the surge or have gone going through the surge now um, they're also planning to how to, how do we do, how do we reopen? And, um, and this is something that state and localities are, are wrestling with this because you, one thing you don't want to do is do this wrong. Because if you do it wrong in the beginning, it's going to be difficult for people to, to believe and trust in their local and state government. So you have to get this right. I mean, we're seeing protests all over the country. And, I, I, and when you look at the number of protesters and some of them over the weekend, you know, there's a hundred here, a hundred there, but you also have to look at the 
uh, hundreds of millions that are following the stay at home. You know, you don't see, you know, huge stories on that. So I think that we have to be careful that a hundred protesters and they have a right to protest, but let's not blow it out of proportion for the num for the amount of people that are actually uh, following it. Some of the polls that I'm sure you all have seen to show the vast majority of the country feels that you have to go at this slowly. And I think for local and state uh, leaders is, you know, over the last few weeks, a lot have garnered a lot of trust with people and they've shown empathy. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think those are two of the most important things that people can do. And as you start to open, you know, restaurants, you know, if they had, a, for example, had 100 people and well, we're going to probably start with 50, maybe a few less in there and how people are going to uh, be presenting their food is going to be different. Uh, I think it's going to be a gradual. I think this is, again, where businesses can play a key role. This cannot just be a government-led um, issue. I think it, for the recovery, this is going to have to be bringing in the uh, community leaders and listen to what others have to say. And that means, you know, local uh, faith-based groups, it's going to mean uh, local small businesses, the local big businesses, who are the largest employees in your area. And get their input, give them some ideas as well. Um, and getting your workers back to work and keeping them safe and then keeping people who are coming safe. So I think it, it has to be a gradual process. It has to be done transparent. You have to bring people in from uh, the entire whole community as you start to open in a gradual process. While we're waiting, I have a question. So, and I've never asked a question before, but I'm gonna go ahead. Um, so last week on Tuesday, um, Stephen Kistler, uh, Christine Tedianto, um, Mark Lipsich, and Jonathan Grad all uh, had published a paper in Science uh, saying that they could see us going through basically cyclical self-isolation until 2022. How do you foresee that as being a different type of challenge um, from other crises we've had in the past? Usually it's a one-time event and it seems like this may be more cyclical than one time. Do you see how this could be, the next round of self-isolation could be implemented differently or how do you see this going moving forward? Uh, a couple of things. I think first off that um, this is, you know, it started out as a novel coronavirus. It's also a novel uh, disaster of the likes that we, most of us in our lifetimes, haven't seen before. And I think how we're able to adjust to this is, is going to be key. In most disasters, you know, whether it's a hurricane or a flood or a tornado or even, you know, uh, a bombing as we saw here in Boston seven years ago, um, that it was an event Recovery was fairly quick. Sometimes it took a week to get there after the hurricane died down, after the, you know suspects were captured or whatever. But there was clearly an end. And without a clear end, it's going to be difficult for people to adjust. And you know, we talk about a new normal. Um, Julia Kaim calls it the now normal. Um, and I think how we look at the where we are now. And we were going to be in a month, and we we're going to be in two months, never mind in 18 months, is something that we all have to adapt to. Uh, and we all, all have to have input in how we're going to get there, because it isn't going to be just, as I mentioned earlier, everyone just saying, this is what we're going to do, because the new normal is going to be difficult. 
Um, and it's going to change from what it is now to what it's going to be in two months to what it's going to be in six months. Um, we were going to be in a year from now. And it's going to change. And I think the, the hottest thing for a lot of people to do ever is change. And that's why, as I, as I mentioned earlier, looking at this in, you know, an arc of time. And as you look at the arc and look at the various scenarios of how we're going to be there over a period of time, and each, each one of these arcs is going to take uh, a longer to get to the point of, of where we need to be. You know, there's a worst case scenario for the ox. There's also the best case scenario for the ox. Um, and how we're able to, you know, get through the, you know, response in a, in a way that we're all going to be able to, to adjust to the, to the now normal uh, and where we're going to be able to go in the future. So it's not just one phase. And I think we're going to all have to adapt uh, as we go forward, that this is not going to be something that we've seen before. Um, and this is where I think we're going to have to be able to li listen um, to each other. Um, because I th I, we're, everybody has their own concerns. We're going to see a new surge of, uh, once this surge of done at the hospitals, for people who haven't been able to go to the hospital for three months, uh, just a routine test. So once that's the surge from COVID-19 goes down, Presuming we don't have another surge and people continue to follow the, you know, request to, uh, you know, wear masks six feet apart, uh, certain people to stay at home uh, after it's open, we're going to see a, a new challenge as we move forward. And I, I wish I could sit here and tell you exactly what that's going to be, um, but I don't think anybody knows exactly what that's going to be. As we look at, you know, the phase from, you know, the outbreak where we are now to, the next phase of monitoring cases and continuing, you know, care for the people who are ill. And then we start to look at how we begin the recovery. Um, some places are moving towards that now, some places are still in, you know, the outbreak, but then how do we monitor the disease transmission? Then to start actively recover, you know, how are we gonna, you know, look at once we have the testing and businesses and schools slowly reopen um, more widespread testing and then start to look at how we can monitor the disease and respond to new cases quickly because we, we will see that and it, it's going to be how do we respond to that and how do we continue to recover. When this first started in this country um, and we started having shelter in place, um, uh, stay at home requests, stay at home orders, people are used to that now whereas initially they weren't to say okay we want this section of the population uh, this location to look at home. But I think as we continue to do this, as we continue to uh, look for new cases, we have to also look at how we can look at continued new treatments. Um, and vaccines are gonna be, you know, as, as mentioned, you know, at least 18 months away. Um, and then to, you know, treat the whole, vaccinate the entire population is gonna take even longer. It's not like there's gonna be one solved and then everybody's gonna be, vaccinate so that that adds some more time in there so i think as we start to look at these you know various uh, acts of time then we're gonna uh, then hopefully you know in a post-covid 19 world um it's not going to look as the same it looked you know four months ago okay thank you um we have another question um yes i had a question so uh so much of what the talk and focus of the so-called reopening um, is on the economic or business aspect of it. And I'm wondering if you 
um, have thought about or people have been thinking about some of the um, secondary or knock-on effects that the shutdown um, will create or is creating. I'm just thinking of people who have not had, you mentioned elective surgery, but dental treatment, um, kids that aren't really doing the schoolwork online, et cetera. There's all kinds of things. I'm wondering if that's been talked about and, and what kind of secondary effects or consequences um, should um, you know cities and towns be anticipating as a result? Sure, I, I think a, a few things on that um, is not just uh, you know like I mentioned the, the um, surge in the healthcare community, you know the dentists every everywhere getting a haircut. There's going to be a surge, although that'll be later. But understanding that there will be this this surge. But I think one of the biggest things that we haven't talked about yet is the mental health issues. The mental health issues uh, for all the first responders, and I include nurses and doctors and hospital staff with that, the paramedics and EMTs that, um, that unfortunately that we see are getting sick and a number that have lost their lives in other places. Um, and here in Boston, New York City, uh, both doctors, nurses, paramedics, police officers, so I, I think we're, we're, the mental health effects are going to be uh, long and hot. Just in New York City, uh, we have to remember that the number of people that died in New York City surpasses 9-11 and Pearl Harbor combined, just in the city. So the mental health effects that we saw from 9-11 uh, were long-term and still going on. So we are going to see that. And that's just in the first response community. And the mental health effects, I think, you know, whether it's uh, children, um, not be able to see their, their friends they go to every day to, you know, to people who are at home. So I think dealing with that mental health effects uh, are going are to be huge and long lasting. Um, as we start to think of, you know, when, you know, how do we, you know, look at opening up areas, you know, what's the, you know, people who have societal benefits, how are we going to be able to uh, start to open up to, you know, are we going to have, um, a stronger healthcare system, you know, or is it going to be damaged um, because so much has gone on? So I think looking at that, but I think that as we start to, you know, go forward, the continue the tests, test widely, isolate the people who are infected, um, look at, you know, how we contact that. But I think we're going to have to also um, really look at the long term effects. Um, because there's obviously huge economic impacts. Uh, we're not going to come out of this, you know, as people say, like flipping a light switch is not going to happen. So it's going to be gradual, which means the economic recovery is going to be gradual. Um, but it, it, to me, one of the biggest issues after the primary health effects of this, uh, saving as many people we can with social distancing, and unfortunately, if they have to go to the hospital for, for treatment, is going to be how do we deal with the mental health effects of those who have been dealing it on the front line and those who have been dealing with it at home as well. Um, and dealing with those is going to be, I think, uh, a, a just as important an issue and a much longer tail on this than perhaps the uh, pandemic itself. Thank you. Um, Rich, do you have any other final words you'd like to say before we end the call? Sure. I think um, a, a few things. I think we have to uh, focus on the positive to show that, you know, there has been, 
you know, a lot of lives saved, a lot of lives lost. And so those who um, heard my, um, I did a, sh a shot video for uh, NPLI, the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, talking about hope. But I think we have to emphasize the positive uh, as well. We have to learn that we have to come together, that together we can solve a lot. We have to, you know, acknowledge uh, and mourn the people that we've lost. We also have to celebrate the lives that have been saved. Um, I think that we can come out of this stronger if we come together. Uh, we have to, you know, continue to look at how we can solidify the connections between people who are in the front line and leaderships. And I think leaders now more than ever uh, have to be able to, again, show that empathy, show that they have trust in a crisis, but also not to take things personally. Um, it's not about what an individual can accomplish. Now, actually, more than ever, it's going to be a collection of people, of what we can accomplish as a group of people coming together is going to be how we're going to get through this. Uh, we've said, some of us in disaster circles for years, there's not going to be uh, one city that can handle this, one state. Um, that can handle this. It's not one country that can handle this. This is going to be uh, truly all of us coming together. And as we talk about in meta leadership is, you know, we have to be able to, all of us as individuals, how are we going to be able to lead up, to lead down, uh, to lead across people we work with and lead beyond as we understand the ever-changing situation and understand yourself as well. Um, and with that, I think that um, we have an opportunity. Uh, we have to get through this. We will get through this. And every crisis comes to the end, to an end. This one may be a little further out, uh, but I know if we come together, we can solve this. This concludes the April 20th press conference.